2: Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Whether
3: you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks... Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.
4: Hello everyone and welcome to Inside the Studio on iHeartRadio. My name's Jordan Runtag, but enough about me. Let me tell you about my guest. He's one half of a creative partnership that stretches back nearly 40 years. Together, they're one of the most unique and unpredictable voices in alternative rock. Spanning genres with airtight harmonies and avant-garde humor, they're sort of like Gen X's answer to the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band. Tracks like Particle Man and Istanbul, Not Constantinople first earned them attention from MTV in the early 90s, but these days, you never quite know when they'll pop up. In addition to 16 studio albums, their creative endeavors have included jingles for toys and themes for beloved sitcoms, animated appearances on Nickelodeon and Cartoon Network, and contributions to the soundtrack for the Broadway production SpongeBob SquarePants the Musical. Now they're gearing up to release their latest record on November 12th, titled Book. Yes, the record's titled Book. It's informed by the hellish realities of the last two years, with their anxieties often channeled for comedic effect. Yes, we laugh to keep from crying. The album book is being released alongside a book called Book. The 144-page hardcover volume features original work by Brooklyn street photographer Brian Carlson alongside song lyrics set among typographical illustrations by graphic designer Paul Sayre. Today we're going to talk about the book book, the album book, the upcoming tour to celebrate the 30th anniversary of their breakthrough album, Flood, and also, we're going to talk a lot about the Beatles, so buckle up. It's my pleasure to welcome the mighty John Flansburg of They Might Be Giants. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Well, first things first, you have a new album coming out called Book, which is fittingly accompanied by a book which features uh, text design, lyrics from the songs, and Brian Carlson's street photography. How did this collection begin for you? Did you create the book and did that inform the music, or was the music the impetus for the book?
5: Well, like so many things with They Might Be Giants, there was absolutely no master plan. Uh, We kind (laughs) of backed into it um, in an... Odd way, you know, we've made a lot of albums and I think we like the album format. And uh, just, you know, making sets of songs is an interesting way to present your work. And I think it's a very music centric way of, of presenting your work. And in a funny way, by making this big package and this big book, we're, uh, the, the in- immediate side effect is it's just bringing a lot more attention to the idea of making an album project. Um, and so, in the same way that all things must pass, or you know, sign of the times, or any any album from your from your childhood, if you're crazy old like me, uh, reminds you of like uh, that kind of music centric listening experience. The whole idea of book is to uh, kind of pull you into the album deeper. And, uh, you know, finding the balance of, of visual elements that would work in a book and complement the music was a little bit tricky. But fortunately, we've been, we've been collaborating with this really amazing graphic designer, Paul Serre, uh, for the last 10 or 15 years. And he's a, you know, he's actually a kind of a big wheel in the world of graphic design. And he, his publisher had, and he, and Paul had talked about this idea of doing a They Might Be Giants book, and I think the first thing that most people think of when they hear about like rock books is like, "Oh, it'll be like a scrapbook. It'll be like like a little stroll down memory lane." And I think that's exactly what most people assume. Whatever book we did would be because that's the kind of thing that bands that have been around for a long time do. Um, this is a little bit more unexpected, but I think it's it's a it's. It's much more interesting, and it's a the process was much more interesting for us. I mean, working with Brian and working with Paul. Paul the Paul created all these sort of poetry concrete or, or concrete poetry lyric images while he he was typing on an IBM Selectric typewriter by hand, and then created all these wild designs on on uh, on paper and. It's very hard to describe, but it's kind of easy to understand if you actually see it. But um, it, it, it was a really fun project. Um, I guess the truth is, it's like a question we do get asked a lot is, like, how do you keep going? And I think the true answer is we keep going because we actually are going. We're not just doing the same stuff over and over again.
4: I mean, just the book just as an object is absolutely gorgeous. I mean, just the the fabric cover and sort of the embossed typeset. I mean, it's so cool. And I mean, you've been working with Paul, I mean, back since Join Us with the with the pink yeah. uh with the pink cardboard um the yes yeah, so, Monster yeah, Truck the, Hearse.
5: Uh, yeah, Monster Truck Hearse. Yeah, that Paul's been you know, Paul is is really a kindred spirit. I feel extremely lucky that we found him. I mean the truth of the matter is like I've I've started in graphic design uh when I was a kid, and that was kind of my fallback, you know, day job in New York when I when we first started the band, I was working in publishing houses, and uh you know, there's a, there's sort of like a graphic sensibility to they might be giants that's, that's kind of consistent. But I've collaborated with a lot of designers over the years, and I feel like in a way, um I kind of burn out designers working with them. You know, like I'll we'll, I'll be with a you know a, a designer for. A couple of years and at a certain point they're just like man this is like more than I can handle like it's just (laughs) because a lot of times to do stuff with the band it's just it requires a level of time that is uh it's much it's 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 a little more intense than doing uh than doing like a regular graphic job which can you know it's usually done in a couple of days like I I think I I really ask a lot of of people fortunately the thing about Paul is that he just has boundless energy and and doesn't mind, he's unafraid of doing things that take extraordinary amounts of time.
4: I mean, it really shows in this book. What was the process like of actually choosing the images to juxtapose with the lyrics? I mean, there was some great, I mean, the one, I want to
5: give too much away, but the one with the with the skeletons, I really enjoy. Oh, and, that, that is an amazing photograph. Well, I mean, Brian it has done the time that it takes to uh, be a successful street photographer. I mean, the times I've talked to him I've I've never met him face to face, but I FaceTimed him a few times, and inevitably he's outside. He's got a camera. You know, he's he's like hitting the streets. He's always uh, preparing himself to find out what photographs are out there. I think all any image in the book probably represents hours, if not days, of waiting for a photograph to happen. Because when you see the book, there is this thing about it where it's like a lot of times it's very much a moment. And um and you can't just you can't just decide you're gonna, you know, those moments are gonna happen. So it's it's an interesting challenge for him. Um he was very generous with the photographs that he had taken in, in recent years. I mean, this is all we started really embarked on the book right as right before lockdown happened. So uh we had we so we had something to pour our energies into once once we were in lockdown. Um, and uh, it was really mostly about finding the images that combined with the song lyrics, would kind of have a multiplier effect, like something that would pull something out of the lyric and amplify it. Um, but yeah, the image he has endless images that are very, very. Mysterious and and kind of uh, enigmatic. The uh, the the thing about making books in the modern world now is um, some of the photographs. I mean, he's he's he doesn't do that many photographs that are really just portraits. But there's this problem in the 21st century with the permissions and street photography being published in a book, is that you still have rights issues, and that was something that Paul was kind of tuned into. It was something that I was not expecting or thinking about, and we were we were kind of we kind of put together a first draft of images, and there was a clutch of really powerful photographs that just were too. Uh, too risky because it, 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 you could get you can get sued for defamation, which is something that I never even considered. Um, if you If you have a, a gallery show and are putting up photographs of people street photography and, and show people's faces, that's totally protected artistic expression. But the actual publishing of a book with somebody's face in it is not, unless they're a public figure. And none of these people are public figures, so there were a couple of images that we kind of shied away from, but that they were few and far between. And we actually uh, got the sort of uh, verbal permission from a few people that are in the photographs that uh, Brian knew, uh, just to give them the heads up that the book was coming, and they were fine with it because they're just they're young people who are just doing crazy stuff.
4: I mean, I hadn't thought of this until you said it, but there is a spontaneity to the book. I mean, you you hear of found poetry; these photos are found moments, and even with the, with the IBM Selectric, there's something very spontaneous about you know not getting all the typeset exactly, you know, right, fitted right. In with a publisher. But it's it's an it's an act done in the moment, and it really comes yeah. through in the book.
5: Yeah, I mean, it's it was I, you know we made a bunch of very specific decisions. I think we we were nervous about doing something that might. Appear messy, and uh, you know I, we just made some choices and kind of stuck to those. And th- I think the book is better for that. It's a, uh, it, it, it turned out really good. I'm I'm proud of it.
4: I mean, getting back to the album you mentioned earlier about having fun with sort of enjoying the 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 you know the act of listening to an album as a physical thing. I mean, it's funny thinking back to. Earlier in your career, when you had the, the dial a song line, which really kind of seems to almost predict streaming services, it was so ahead of its time. And now you released your new album on eight track, which I believe sold out, you know, in addition oh, yeah. to vinyl and cassette. Like, yeah, what, what is, tell me more about sort of the motivation behind releasing uh, your <laughs> new work on these formats that, you know, I mean, I, I listen to most of my music on a record player, so I totally get it, but I wanna hear more um, about your.
1: Reason well, you
5: know, I guess because we were putting the album out as a book, but it's also on all the other typical formats as well. Um, we just thought people were sort of wondering if it was only going to be, uh, you know, sold as a book with a download, or if it was going to actually be everywhere else. And uh, we just so, so kind of went format crazy. We 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 uh, decided we were going to make a cassette, which was like the first time we'd made a cassette in a really long time. And as soon as we put that on sale, it sold like crazy. And it was like, oh, really? That's wild. Like, there actually is a cassette culture out there that's relatively healthy. And uh, and then uh, Pete in our management looked into uh, people manufacturing 8-tracks. And sure enough, there are actually two different companies now uh, pressing 8-tracks in the United States. And... Uh, you know, I mean, we made, we did the a track thing as the limited edition. I'm sure there are people who are into eight tracks <laughs> listening right now who are like, that's, that's my only thing. That's the thing I care about. Uh, you know, how can I get one? Uh, we made like 250 of them and then it was just like, the, the truth of it is, it's all of the a tracks are essentially handmade. The guy who, the guy that we're working with, he, I didn't realize that this is how they did it, but it's, it's actually like a, almost like a object lesson in um, some, Future, uh, uh, what is the term? Like, re, it's, it's like an upcycled thing. He's, he's, uh, he's taking old eight tracks, cracking them open and uh, replacing the parts inside them, putting them back together and then putting new covers on them. So he's not, they're not manufacturing new shells and new, and new cartridges for these eight tracks. He's actually rehabbing old ones. Which is, I guess, the only way you can really do it. Um, I don't think the demand, there, there, there's a lot, you, you can buy a lot of used A Trax on eBay for $10 <laughs> and get a thousand uh, highly non functioning A tracks The truth of the matter is, A tracks are a terrible format just yeah. from a mechanical point of view. They do not last. But
4: if you're driving around in your Pinto or something and you know, you gotta, it helps. Yeah, it's, it creates the experience.
5: Yeah. I've been, I've been, I've, I've been watching the Americans during all this lockdown, uh, which a show I had never watched before and I you know I was uh, very uh, one of the things that's delightful about the show is uh, they clearly purchased like a baby blue pinto at the <laughs> beginning of the filming and every every fifth exterior scene somewhere is parked this this pinto and uh, listeners out there, I'm sure many of them do not know what a Ford Pinto is. but be, uh, And the reason is because it is a really crummy car. If you, there, there was a time when there were probably as many. Yeah, there were, it explodes. But uh, it also just doesn't last. I think they're like classic rust buckets. If you think about every time you see a Volkswagen Beetle, there probably was a Ford Pinto manufactured exactly at the same time, but none of those cars lasted. You know, think about how many old yeah. Beals you see. You see a million. Uh, you never see Pintos anymore. They just they just didn't make it. That's the. You also never see you never see AMC cars right. anymore either.
4: Well, I mean, you, you know, you mentioned watching um, the Americans during during lockdown. Um, you know, listening to, to some of these tracks, I mean, the single "I Can't Remember the Dream," uh, and even the opening track "Synopsis for Latecomers." There's a sense of certain anxiety in some of these songs, and I was wondering how much did the pandemic uh, play, you know, impact the uh, the music you're working on?
5: Well, I mean, you know, we, I think we, as writers, we have a, a natural impulse to just kind of. Hype every impulse. I mean, I think we're, if we're writing a song about anxiety, we tend to whatever's kind of naturally in there. We also sort of pump up, and it's I think that's true of almost everything. I mean, it, maybe it's just the nature of of writing that you want it to be as extreme as it can be. If you're writing a song about being uh, mad about a breakup, you end up writing a song about revenge. You know, it's like it, you tend to just make more out of things than. Uh, might be there on a regular day.
4: And something I've
5: I've loved about your music is
4: that so often there are these gorgeous melodies paired with these very kind of anxiety-producing lyrics that really undercut the merriment of the music. I wanted to ask you more about, you know, your tendency towards the sort of lyrical bait-and-switch.
5: Well, it, that's something that got spotted a while ago, and it wasn't something that we really thought about that much. Um... But I think it might have really come out of trying to figure out how to balance the elements within a song. I mean, when you're writing a song, you have a lot of uh, you have a lot of things at your disposal. Like you can you can balance things. But one thing about melody that's that's unusual is that even though it might, even though the 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 overall idea of the song might be quite clearly complicated melodies have a way of simplifying your emotional response to things I mean I don't think I don't think our melodies are particularly cheerful but I think we live in a time when melodies are almost an endangered species so it's like writing anything with a song any song with with a melody in it um, is is uh, might might come across as seeming old fashioned or or cheerful or or sentimental um so i think i think it's something that just kind of crept in there i mean i sometimes i wonder if we should like if it would be interesting to do the inverse of that like write really gloomy kind of do, doomy music and then with a uh, extremely <laughs> happy lyrics but I, I somehow i don't think that's going to work as well
4: there was um an interview you gave recently where you talked about I think you called it the lab work that goes into uh, to writing a song all the all the prep work kind of laying out all the ingredients like a chef before you start cooking which is such an interesting notion because me as somebody who who's never written a song in his life that's something I'd that never really occurred to me I wonder, what is that process like for you
5: well you know the evolution of the recording process is 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 uh, pretty baroque at this point I mean when people were making records in the middle of the last century they were just standing in front of a microphone and making a sound but you know by either by themselves or with a band or whatever and what happened is what went to the record um these days we're working with computers and there's an incredible even just making a demo there's there's so many decisions that can be made and you know the thing about working with computers is that y- if you're in that kind of inquiry period, there's no time limit. You're never going to go and say like, I mean, it can be helpful to have a time limit because otherwise you you kind of can start going about the business of finishing a song before you've even started. You're just like, "Oh, you know, I want to make this this song be really strange and echoey and all a- and you don't even have a chorus written and you're and you're like swimming around in a reverb sound or something." So, um Sometimes I lean on the inquiry process of finding sounds as a way to stave off writer's block um but um it's when you're doing a demo and arranging a song the thing that you really have to remember is like all the parts have to fit together you you're kind of making you you're 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 tweaking out all those little details like whether it's like for instance like if you are there's a song on the new album called Moonbeam Rays that has no and this is not something that I think people would notice necessarily um but uh there's actually no hi hat on on the song and um there're very I think there're very few people uh very few drummers who would approach doing any pop song and think oh I'm not going to play the hi hat on this but one of the things that happens immediately when you don't play the hi hat is you're making All this room for the vocal because the where the hi hat sits in the mix is exactly the the same spot as where a vocal is. In fact, sometimes if um, somebody doesn't sing an S in a song, we'll actually just grab a closed hi hat sound and put it in where where the S would be because it sounds exactly like a human being singing an S. Wow. Um, You know, if you sing a line like hands. And you, and you swallow the S, you can just, if you want it to be bold, you just grab a, a stray closed hi-hat and put it in at the end of the hands. That will sub substitute very nicely for a, va- a well-enunciated S. It's a little studio trick that we learned a long, long time ago. Wow. Um, I mean, you can also go back and sing an S, but it's like sometimes if you're working on digital stuff, you, it's just easy to just grab a strong S from a hi-hat. That's
4: so interesting.
5: Drum machine hi hats work even better, but um, uh, yeah. So, so I guess we're always thinking about the final product, and you know, having recorded a lot of songs, it's, you can kind of get there. Just uh, it's 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 a fun challenge to sort of uh, you know keep the sonics interesting.
4: I mean, you're involved in so many different mediums. How much of your day is is taken up with music? Is it a daily practice for you? Is that something that you're always working on, or does it depend on on your mood and other projects you have going on?
5: Yeah, I, I basically go to work every day. I mean, my, my dad was kind of a workaholic, and and I think I kind of got hit that kind of daily routine from him. He worked at a home office. He always worked every weekend. Um yeah, it's just something that you know, it's it's fun to do. I mean, I think the truth is it's like uh you know, as we say in the tour bus when things are not going so great, you wanted to be in a band. Um, you know, I feel like incredibly grateful that uh I've I've been able to have like, you know, a life making recordings and and doing live shows. It's it's incredibly fun and it's it never stops being interesting. Um when I don't feel really up to finishing a song or, or getting in, th- in the middle of, of working on a song, I do have this kind of exploratory thing happening. And, you know, I've got a, I've got a, uh, I've got, you know, 20 unfinished kind of rhythm, you know, I I think in some ways, we pro- I, John and I probably have more in common with like hip hop artists who have like big libraries of beats stacked up. I think we have kind of, our version of of that kind of uh, work, all not not as many lyric fragments and chord progression fragments. We also have these like uh, kind of uh, just recording ideas, arrangement ideas, musical you know beats and chords, and I don't, I don't even know what to call them. They're just kind of half. They're just unfinished songs in a way.
4: What was your initial point of of connection creatively with with John? I know you go guys go way back to to high school, but was there a moment when your
5: minds sort of met creatively? Well, we both ended up kind of. I was, let's see. Well, John and I were friends in high school. I didn't really play an instrument in high school. Um, then the sort of new wave punk rock explosion of nineteen seventy seven happened, and and my friend Brad Smith gave me a guitar. Uh, which was really how I started playing. And I started writing songs right away because it was easier to write new songs than figure out how to play quickly enough to play other people's songs. And um, this is all at really much at the end of high school. John went away to Rhode Island and was in an actual, was in a real professional band when he was like 19 years old. And I was 18 um, and started doing home recording. And we both moved to New York at the same time. John moved to New York to kind of make it big with his other band. And um, I was going to art school at Pratt. And I had been in a band with another high school friend of ours when I was living in Ohio for just like six months uh, called The Blackouts. And... That was super fun. So both John and I were having this like band experience. Um, when we started doing this, it was kind of more of just like a home recording project. I don't think we knew how we would take it out out because we didn't have a drummer. Um, but we started making recordings, and uh, the idea, the sort of the abstract idea of having a band appealed to us, but it, it didn't seem really realistic. And then this fellow that we knew, um, who was from New York City, started doing a one-man band thing with a drum machine, which seemed really revolutionary. Like he had a Roland like eight, 707 or something, some some ro- very early Roland kind of all, a very toy-like uh, drum machine. But he, you know, he had really good songs. He was a really good singer, and a really good guitar player. His name was his stage name was Mick Milk. And um, he had a, and it was one of those things where he had a huge following because he had gone just gotten out of college, and so all his college friends would show up. So, whenever he did a show, there'd be like 150 people there, all just partying their brains out. And but we didn't know that, we just thought, oh, he's doing the new kind of music that everybody wants to hear, he's doing drum machine music, so um it seemed like kind of a, a sassy move to uh, work with a drum machine because all of a sudden you're sort of liberated from ha- from this big social hurdle of finding a drummer who likes your music. I think, I mean, somebody said, if there were twice as many drummers in New York City, there'd be twice as many bands. And I think that's really true. Um, you know, New York City is a very hostile place to try to start a band in the first place. It's very hard to find places where you can make noise, um... Even just small amounts of noise. So uh, that was really the start of it for me and John. And um, for a while, it was really just—I um, don't think we had any big professional ambitions. I mean, we our professional ambitions kind of stopped at the idea of just getting shows. Like we knew we could get shows, and that was a big enough challenge.
4: You're about to go speaking of shows out on the road for a, a belated 30th anniversary of. Tour, anniversary tour for Flood. W- what is your relationship like to that album now? Thirty years on.
5: Oh, it's you know, it's funny doing the Flood shows versus just doing regular shows because I it's almost inadvertently a, a Trojan a Trojan horse because I don't we we seldom do shows where we don't play Birdhouse in Your Soul and assemble and we usually play Particle Man and we often play the song Twistin and Dead and Your Racist Friend and we play a lot you know there's a clutch of songs off that record that are some of our best known songs there are also songs on that record that are exceptionally unusual even by our standards and so when to go about doing a flood show uh where we're playing the complete album in a weird way we're I wonder whose dream we're really fulfilling um because They, you know, I guess, I guess for for people in the front row, they're just, you know, kind of basking in the glory uh, that is that most popular album. But just from a a theatrical point of view, I always wonder if it's actually what people were bargaining for, Uh, because a regular show is much closer to a greatest hits show than a flood show. But you know. You know we're proud of the album. It was a big leap forward for us in terms of being record makers. We learned a lot making the record. A lot of technology had evolved, and the circumstances under which we made the record were a lot less uh, tense than we actually had time and focus. And it was it that was the that was the first project we did where being some being in the band and recording was really like our. That was our professional creative challenge. Like before then, it, we were working in the middle of the night, sinking into studios for, you know, tiny, you know, just for tiny numbers of hours, working as frantically as we could. So it was nice to actually just be able to have the time and focus to do a record. I'm thinking about your incredibly diverse career, not
4: only in music, but in just different arenas as well. Has there been a a creative venture for for you that, you know, has gone unfulfilled so far? Is there anything left that that you both would
5: really like to to achieve, either musically or otherwise? Um, Everybody tells us we should do a Broadway musical, but I don't really know what it would be. Um, In the back of my mind, I think whoever does a QAnon musical first will be the big (laughs) cultural winner. (laughs) <laughs> um although I don't know how safe that would be maybe you just get right. doxed and then someone would burn down your house but um but I still think like uh when I think of the really interesting musicals of the past like uh, like Hair for instance you know Hair was made at the height of the Vietnam War there's no particular reason and and the Vietnam War was just as contentious as any other war I mean there were pe- plenty of Plenty of riots in the streets over that one, so I don't see why there couldn't be a QAnon musical. Um, but uh, we haven't really taken it ser- that seriously. I think it would be it would be nice to do something like that, though. Not specifically a QAnon musical, but to do some kind of to do some kind of musical project that could could go on uh, without us being the engine behind it. I think it would be fun.
4: Yeah, you with the the SpongeBob song, right? For uh... Yeah,
5: yeah. That was I mean, we've done a lot of kind of one-off things where people call us up and say like, will you do a song, you know, write a song for this thing or that thing. We just did a thing for the Central Park show on uh, Apple Plus, and that was fun as well. But yeah, it's just doing something that was sort of a bigger format and it had the sensibility of the band would be would be an interesting challenge. Um and I don't know. I mean, we could even do an, you know, an animated do the, do like a, like a an animated film that w- had music to it. I think would be interesting. We've worked with a lot of great animators over the years, and it would be fun to uh, kind of really dive deeper into that world. Um, but you know, right now it's like between the the live shows and and just making albums. Uh, but then again, like you know. P- uh, we just decided that people are still making albums. I feel like Spotify has kind of decided that people aren't making albums anymore. So, have you ever have you heard this term Lucy's being real? <laughs> it's, 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 what, it's what people, if, no, I mean, in I New haven't. York City, in, it's what people at Spotify, or not at Spotify, but people working within the world of Spotify refer to, like uh, all the preview tracks and all the one off songs that are released into the world. Because that's a really you know we've released five teaser tracks off this album and like our our audience is saying like, why are you previewing so many songs off the album?" but they're they're acts that basically dole out every song of the album before they put the mm-hmm. album out and uh, but evidently the in the inside terminology is Lucy's, which is uh, uh, in New York City, is is like buying a single cigarette at a bodega. Uh, can you still you, do if it? You, if you're <laughs> trying to yeah, quit smoking? Can. They certainly do do it. I can. I, <laughs> I'm not a smoker, but I, I can tell you that Lucy's are very popular in in lots of bodegas. I think they cost. I think they still cost a buck. I did not know that. I I,
4: I live out in Williamsburg. I have to go uh, check out my corner bodega when I get home. Yeah,
5: give it a try. <laughs>
1: at purdueglobal.edu. How's
5: Williamsburg doing? I haven't been in Williamsburg in years now. Oh, it, it is
4: wild. It, I mean, I, I've been in my same apartment. It's a dividing line between Williamsburg and Bushwick. And right. uh, I, I mean, there are s- not- whole, whole blocks that are unrecognizable to me that I've been there in 10 years.
5: Yeah, yeah. I mean, what's funny is I I moved to Williamsburg, and what's funny to me is I, I you know I moved to Williamsburg in the '80s, and there was never ever any new construction. It wasn't like nobody nobody <sighs> was investing in Williamsburg at all. And then right as I was leaving, I sort of realized you know I I felt like uh, I I could hear the 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 engines of the of the Renault <laughs> trucks coming down the street and, and everything seems to have been either facelifted or just completely gutted and restored it's it's insane how much construction is happening there but I think it's because the housing stock is just really crummy yeah you know? I mean the original stuff is was made really the apartments that I lived in were so so bad so raw there w- the f- apartment that that song was housed in, there was not a parallel wall or ceiling. I mean like it was like it was it was Van Gogh's bedroom. Everything was, you know, at this jaunty angle. The whole building had kind of sunk to the right. It was and yeah, it was it was rough.
4: All the drawers on my desk hang open because oh, it, nice. it's the floor.
5: Yeah. I mean I, I tried I tried some, taping uh, them. <laughs> That is some urban realness <laughs> there. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, I you know Williamsburg was was fun while it lasted, but it turned into like St. Mark's Place. I just could I couldn't handle the population density. Also, when I first moved into my building, I was the youngest person by decades. It was all like old Polish ladies, and by the time I moved out, uh, there was like a techno DJ living above me and at, at 2 and it, it's like he had like subwoofers facing the floor um, on uh, and at 2 in the morning it would just be like
1: <laughs>
5: and
1: and uh
5: you know it's ridiculous like I'm a guitar player I'm going to be like taking a, <laughs> you know, pounding a broom on on the ceiling <laughs> or like yeah not going to start like can you please turn it down but it, they they did push they they pushed me out
4: The guy, the wall that abuts my bed um, starts doing the same thing, starts playing techno, begins at three in the morning, ends at five. I I don't know what, I don't know what that's that's about. That's that's what it wears off. That's what it wears off. Yeah. (laughs) Right.
5: Yeah. I think, you know, you come back from the clubs and you're still feeling it. So it's like, there you go. Um, Yeah. It's a party zone for sure. I mean, the first thing that happened, we lived on North 8th Street across from Teddy's. And uh, like it was always on weekends, every weekend. I mean, this part was kind of like living in the West Village or something because a lot of people would go to Williamsburg on dates. You know, there's like a lot of people would, it was kind of a date destination for other people, other areas of New York City. And People would always be having breakups on our block. You know, they would walk <laughs> off of off of Bedford Avenue and be like, "Okay, let's find someplace quiet so we can yell and cry at each other." And um, so every you know every Friday night or Saturday night, I'd be like, "When is a good time to talk about it?" And you just and it's a horrible thing waking up to people breaking up.
4: I'm just. I'm trying to figure, picture like that. You know. I mean, was this where this is where the the dial-a-song answering machines also had? Uh, sometimes,
5: yeah. Uh, for an interval, yeah, yeah. I'm like, Can you guys keep it down. I'm trying to make some music in here.
4: Wow. I mean, that's a lot of energy in that in that corner. I guess. I mean, thinking about that, those confluence of uh, of yeah. influences there. Wow. Yeah. I
5: mean, but I also bored. I did have an open uh, high speed Wi-Fi. Uh, modem that I just I just defeated the password of it. So basically, because I was like, I don't need to hide my modem. You know, I can I I I was I think I was one of the earliest people to get whatever the the high speed pipe was. And I thought I'm just going to share this with the neighborhood. I, I'll be in Teddy's drinking coffee and and wishing I had high speed <laughs> internet. So I just I just opened it up, and sure enough, you know, it only had to travel halfway down the block, and so. For years, I would look at all those people in teddies with their with their uh, you know laptops open, working on whatever they were working on, and I was like, "I'm helping those people stay connected with the internet."
4: I mean, this is this is going to sound like a silly question, but it's it's a, it's a sincere one, and it's one that I'm I'm currently. Grappling with in my own life, how has moving to you know uh, nature uh, affected you creatively? Like, have you found it easier to focus? Have you found it more you know inspiring? I know that's such a cliched way of of thinking about it, but how has that uh, that shift been for you?
5: Well, you know the the thing. The truth is, like, no matter what room you're making, you're writing in, you're kind of just writing inside a room. So, I I I mean, it's nice to be in kind of a prettier part of the world but um but I like New York City too. I mean I think of New York City as as a, as kind of a beautiful place in its own way. Um I f- for most of my adult life uh I wrote and recorded in one one room in one apartment and that was my workspace and my living space for many years as well. And leaving that place did make me think like um. What is that part of like broadcast news where the the woman says to Albert Brooks like maybe it's because you realize the good part of your life is over and the bad part of your life <laughs> is beginning and uh, I think I was a little bit apprehensive that I was leaving the place that was where my creativity came from, which is ridiculous and and kind of you know that's not it doesn't work that way. I mean that's just that's just uh being super, very superstitious, but, um, but yeah, it kind of, you know, especially because so much of what I'm doing in They Might Be Giants is uh, computer-based, you know, I mean, it's, a lot of it is uh, just like combing through audio files and doing like really intense, pointless editing. Um, it, it, I, I wish I wish it was a bigger change, you know. I wish being in the country meant like, oh, you know, everything's pastoral now. It's 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 still very much, uh, you know, uh, very much about looking at a screen, and that I wish it was less that. But such as such as modern music making, just haul in an old Studer four track or something and just do it like that instead. Right, right. <laughs> those the, well, that's my those are my roots. I mean I've got I've still have a act 4 track but um and it works nice. but but uh I don't know that's that's a whole other challenge. <laughs>
4: well my my last question I don't want to take up too much more of your time but unfortunately it's a big one. Um okay. I have never written a song before. How do I start?
5: <laughs> uh well um you might Want to? Do you play an instrument? Yeah,
4: I just can't write.
5: I would this this would be this would be my best strategy is is get get a tape recorder or your phone and just record uh, playing you're playing the instrument that you play just going back and forth between two chords um, They can be kind of interesting chords or chords that aren't so related to one another and then. As you're listening back to that, sing over that, and find your put yourself in a place where nobody can hear you singing. You know, <laughs> so that's important because you don't want people to uh, make you feel self conscious. But I, but that, but you know, disconnecting the act of playing the instrument and singing can be useful because singing and playing at the same time is not the necessarily the easiest thing to do. So. You'll f- sort of find you can get like more fluid results that way, and uh, you can even like start singing like a melody without words, and then listen back to that. You know the the instrument and the and the voice together, and figure out like well what words would go with that. And that would be I feel like I'm I'm like doing the Paul McCartney Junior thing and <laughs> the Paul McCartney one two three. <laughs> Somebody was pointing out, some Beatle maniac was pointing out something interesting about that special to me, which is that Rick Rubin, who is a musical person and is certainly, you know, can talk about sophisticated musical ideas, he had the opportunity to ask Paul McCartney what the opening chord of A Hard Day's Night really is. And um, for people who are not uh, obsessive Beatle fans out there, uh, the opening chord of of Hardest Night, which is also like the opening chord of the anthology series, and it's sort of used as like the classic stinger on all uh, Beatles related material. It, it's it's this really ambiguous chord because it's created by both a guitar doing like a sophisticated chord. A bass that's playing a note that isn't in the chord the guitar is playing, and then I guess on top of it, there's even a, there's a kind of a phantom keyboard part being played by George Martin, which I, I I can't really hear, but uh, but maybe I should listen closer. But but it is a very uh, unstable and mysterious bit of musical information, and Rick Rubin had every opportunity to delve deep into that and just didn't. I mean, I am on.
4: I think I I'm in the midst of writing. It's up to seven thousand words, and my editor is going to kill me. Piece on the new Let It Be box set. So you're. I was just earlier this week watching a ten minute tutorial on that chord, which goes right. <laughs> to show you what my life is like. Uh, it was like an F add thirteenth or something. There's like it's some insane chord. Right. Doesn't well,
5: exist. what what is an F? Uh. Uh. Well, I mean that. Huh. I'm trying to think what an F13 would be. What is a thir- what is it? What is the interval that's being added? Um, well, we should take this <laughs> off the air because I want to talk to you about the Beatles. <laughs> All right, Have I mean, you seen, do you, has the movie has, has the movie come out? The, has the the Get Back movie in? in is, are there any previews dying. available?
4: I right, there's a there's a three minute. Trailer that dropped yesterday, which oh, if you a new, haven't okay. seen. A new trailer. You, it's not the one that he did in December right. with. Right. Uh, but it's it's like a three and a half minute. It's so good, everything about it. I mean, even I mean, some of the stuff you saw in anthology, you know, in the in the final anthology. But still, it's just it, the clarity of it. It, it, it really, it, it's like a play. I mean, I know they have the book that just came out too with it, Day by Day where they have excerpts from the transcripts and it reads like a Joe Orton play or something. I mean, it's just, it's so funny. What,
5: what was the, like, I'm trying to figure out what the director guy, who's, is he, he's the Lord of the Rings guy. He, oh yeah, Peter he, Jackson. You know, his, his take on not putting the record out during COVID reminds me of like, listening to like Jerry Seinfeld talking about like, you know, uh how people shouldn't be sense, you know, political correctness is killing humor or something. It's like, why why wouldn't you put the movie out during COVID? You <laughs> we know, need the, this. It, we need this so yeah. bad. You gotta, you know, you got a bunch of really depressed people who would like nothing more than to just bask in the 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 glory that was the Beatles um, you know, maybe slowly breaking up. You know, I I but I, I hear that the you know that the movie is much more optimistic that even though they are breaking up, it's very clear that they still got a lot of joy out of the process, which does not come, obviously does not come across in the original movie Let It Be at all, which is oh, yeah, kind of a, a gloomsday uh thing. I I read an article that was saying that let it be the movie that They did one preview of the original edit of the movie, and it was decided that all cameo appearances of other people had to be cut out.
4: Well, that was an Um, Alan Klein edict. That was like,
5: because he was like, no, it's just going to be about...
4: My clients. That's why all the shots are so tight, and it feels so claustrophobic. And you, you kind of, even though they're in that, you know, big Twickenham soundstage, it feels so like it doesn't feel nice to watch that. It's so you're, yeah, you're, yeah. It's exactly what happened. Which yeah. Is so I mean, evidently, terrible.
5: in the original edit, like there are all these people hanging on, like you know, Mick Jagger's coming around, Keith Richards coming around, and and all these other people play into it much much more. Um, but uh, you just don't see those people, so I wonder if they'll be. I wonder if it'll be just be a parade of the fresh faces of classic rock. Um, but <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Oh,
4: uh, right. You know, as soon as you get off with me, you gotta check out the the new it just dropped yesterday. It's so great. It will make your day. It's it's really really wonderful.
5: Oh, I can't wait. for Okay. You to see it. Well, let's let's wrap up here before we make people unconscious talking about the, the Beatles.
4: <laughs> no, we'll, we'll cut that part out. Okay. Uh, I, I, well, thank you so much for your your uh, your your time and your music and your advice to me for
5: songwriting. I hope anyone else <laughs> is out there who's
4: who's struggling to how to uh, you, you know see, how You to put your hand begin. on the white
5: keys and then you move your hand over a little bit and that's another chord and that's good. <laughs>
4: Yeah, oh, yeah I love how we just like, yeah, it's easier for Paul McCartney. Thanks, Paul. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> <Everything's> <laughs> well, was, I found it very helpful. I found your advice very helpful. So okay. thank you for that. John, thank you very much. Thank, Peeps, thank you. with you, sir. Have a beautiful rest of your day. Check out that trailer and hope to see you on stage soon. Yeah, peace and love. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Inside the Studio, a production of iHeartRadio. For more episodes of Inside the Studio or other fantastic shows, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.
0: Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
2: With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
0: Dearly beloved,
5: we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom?
2: Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time.
0: No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry